Well, good morning. We had a good time uh, this past week over at the Genesis Campus Ministry at UALR. We were able to go over and cook hamburgers and hot dogs for them, and they are just getting the semester started. They had a quite a large graduation of their number uh, this last year, and so Caleb McCoughlin, who is the uh, campus minister, uh, their work is overseen by the central congregation, so Caleb is in a rebuilding mode. So he'd been out on campus all day long inviting folks to this back-to-school dinner. And so he does on Monday nights, they do a supper, and that is contributed by the the local congregation. So several of us involved in that. Um, He has Wednesday night Bible study, of course. And then Friday night, I think, is when they do like a game night. And so they'll invite everybody over. And so they've got something going on all week long. And so I ask your prayers for him and on his behalf uh, as they rebuild that ministry and reach out to the students there at UALR, students from all over the world. And so UALR is a multinational, multicultural uh, bowl that, uh, that he is working within. And so uh, our prayer is that uh, we can be a part of encouraging him and supporting him and supporting the work there at the Genesis ministry. And so we had a good time over there. Backpack Buddies kicked off this morning, and so I appreciate uh, Vanessa Dowdy and, and her work in organizing that and getting it going. And so we have members of our congregation here who are adopting for the school year one of our summer's kids. And so they will spend time this year uh, encouraging them and, and maybe engaging in some of their activities and just uh, being a part of their life and reminding them that, that the church is a lot bigger than their family. And one of the things that Tress and I have always been uh, really sincere about is wanting our kids to realize that the church is not mom and dad. And the reason they go to church is not because of mom and dad. Because when mom and dad are not here, I don't want us to be the only connection they have to a congregation. And so it's so important to have these kids involved in Backpack Buddies and meeting people uh, that maybe they only see from a distance and getting to know them and they getting to know our kids also. And then Thursday, we are in back-to-school mode. And so this Thursday, we're going to be at Glenview Elementary once again and we're going to be helping out with the pantry that's there. We'll be over there at noon unloading the food and then setting up and pantry will run from 1.30 until 3 o'clock. And so families are coming in and we're able to, to meet them and to help them gather the this fresh food that they're coming to get and then help get that into their car for them, make some relationships and see some people that we've been seeing now for, I believe this is our fourth year, uh, if I'm correct, that we've been doing this. Summers Avenue does not spend any money doing the fresh food pantry at Glenview. We donate our time. And so the, the money comes through grants through the school district, and we go over and we spend our time uh, greeting people and helping set it up and making sure that it, it runs as smoothly as, as... If you ever come and see who's there, as smoothly as possible, uh, let me just say that. And so we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. This time of the year, you know, we're, always, we're looking forward, but we're always looking back. And I find myself often in a reflective mood. And so I have been especially um, these last few weeks. And not that I don't normally reflect, reflect on aspects of my life, but more so as I am 21 days from my golden birthday. And so I will, I will be 50 years old in 21 days. And I know it's shocking. I know it's shocking because you didn't realize you looked as good as I did when you were 50, right? And so, so 50. So anyway, but anyway, I've been reflecting a lot more. And especially for my last five birthdays, I've really been thinking a lot about this because My uncle died when he was 45, and so from my 45th birthday to now, I think about how how young he was when he passed away. I didn't realize that 
until I got here. 21 days. 21 days. In my mind, when I was 21 years old, 50-year-old was looked like Bill Ed. You know, that's what 50 looked like, right? And so, and I'm thinking 30 years from now, I'm going to be Bill Ed's age. And I'm like, man, what in the world? But I hope I'm as cool and as spry as Bill Ed is. But he knows how much I love him. And so we can have these open and honest conversations with each other, right? And so... 21 days. But in in my near 50 years, I would argue that the greatest achievement that I have witnessed in the world around me has to be the invention of the computer and the, the Internet. And so these things have changed our world in a dramatic fashion and continue to change our world just at lightning speed, right? And so ways that are mind-blowing even. There are some 7.8 billion people in the world. That's the estimate. There's no way you can get a good count on that. But estimated 7.8 billion people of this identifiable number. And nearly 5 billion of those have access to the Internet. And so for all the negativity that's surrounding the the World Wide Web and the dark side of, of social media, I want you to remember this number, 2,970. 2,970. That number represents how many people since January 1st, 2007, how many people have asked to be enrolled in a Bible course because of our website. So when we started our website, we put a link on there, right? Little old Summers Avenue Church of Christ, North Little Rock, Arkansas. And so this number does not include those who have called on the phone and asked to be enrolled. It doesn't include those who have written and asked to be enrolled. It doesn't include those who have been enrolled because of those who were enrolled. This is specifically those who have, 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 have clicked a button. This doesn't include World Bible School either, those who have contacted us through that. It's only those who have found our website, clicked on a button that asked them, would you like to take a Bible course? And they said, yes. And so in 2007, there were six. And I know you can't see this, I just want you to see the line and how it changes. 2008, there were 12, okay? We're, we're two years into this, right? In 2009, there were 18 who clicked and said yes. 2010, there were nine. Something happened that year. I don't know what it was. With the internet, probably. And so 2011, there were 74. 2012, there were 269. Boom! Google changed some things about their search engine and and the search parameters. And so when people were searching for us, they found us a lot easier and a lot more directly. In 2013, there were 431 who clicked the button. 2014, there were 309. 2015, there were 352. 2016, there were 265. 2017, there were 293. Last year, there were 629 people who clicked a button and said, I want to be enrolled in your Bible course. And so far this year, we have 303. And so what does this mean? What do all these numbers mean? It means that 2,970 people have been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the most passive route we have for sharing the gospel. We stick a button on a website, they find it, they click it, and they enroll. That's about as passive as you can get. Now, Charles and Gil and Frank and all those who helped them would tell you there's nothing passive about 
pulling these off of there and filling out the envelopes and stamping them and mailing them and grading the lessons and all that. I'm not talking about the process. I'm talking about the, the, the coming in contact with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Exposing someone to the Gospel. We put a link on a website and nearly 3,000 people have said, I want to study. And that is awesome. I want us to celebrate that. And I have a question. <laughs> what if each of us had asked just one person, just one person over the course of those years, to study the Bible? And they said yes. What about that? It could have been 2,000 more people. And what if we had each asked one person every six months? 4,500 people. What if we had asked one person every month for the last 13 years that that's been on our website? What if we personally asked one person every month for the last 13 years and they said yes? 27,000 people would have been studying the Bible. Do you see how the kingdom of God spread quickly through the known world after Acts 2? God knew, and Jesus knew, how this would happen. In Matthew 28, we read one of the best known and most quoted passages, sections of Scripture that Christians find in the Bible. And even non-Christians can quote this one also. So Jesus had risen, right? At this point, into Matthew. He's preparing to leave, return to the Father, and, and, and leave all of His these apostles, all of those. Everything He had accomplished, He is leaving now in their hands. Here's what I've told you to do. Here's what I've shown you to do. Now you go do it. And so we find here in Matthew 28, 16, then the eleven disciples, remember Judas is dead, right? Hanged himself. The eleven disciples at this point went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And it's interesting to me that before Jesus tells them to go do anything, before He has this conversation with them, there's worship. And how about that? After Jesus had risen, preparing to return to the Father, before He says one more thing to these disciples, we read here in the Scripture that they worship Him. They come into His presence and worship because there's this, there's this being in awe of who God is before we're commissioned to do what God asks. So they worshiped Him. And, it says, some doubted. Some doubted. What is that about? Think about all that they had witnessed, everything they had seen, everything Jesus had shared with them, that He had revealed to them over these last days and years. And Jesus was arrested, right? He was betrayed. And some of those who were there with Him now had betrayed Him, had fled Him. He was killed, and now He stands resurrected before them. And they're not sure what all's going on. <laughs> we don't know what is up with this. But they're still there. They're still present. And Jesus doesn't separate the, uh, the doubters from those who were, weren't doubting. Scripture doesn't say that to us. He gives a commission to all of them. Everybody is included. And shouldn't that be comfort to us? That Jesus commissions people. Jesus wants people serving in His kingdom who don't have it all figured out. And so He commissions people who still have questions about the world. Still have questions about who God is and what is God up to? What is God doing? How is He functioning in the world? 
And Jesus commissions even the doubters. And Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so when Jesus speaks this great commission, the first word is go. It's go. And when churches advertise their services, when they want to expose their their community of faith to the world, what do we tend to do? Come. Right? Come to us. Come here. And that's not a bad thing. We need to be inviting people to be among us, to, to experience and be exposed to what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom come, as our sights are set on kingdom eternal. We want people to come and bring friends and, and be a part of the family of faith here at Summers Avenue. We want that. We want to expose them to, and, and have them experience life as part of the body of Christ. But the Great Commission is not about coming to a place. It's about going to a place, into the world, out, go. And the object of the Great Commission is not baptizing. It is not teaching. It is not obeying. That's not the object. Stay with me. The Great Commission is about making disciples, followers. It's the reason you go into the world is to make disciples. The reason we teach is to make disciples. The reason we baptize is to make disciples. It's all about disciple-making. And so Jesus has been telling people for three years that discipleship is the way to the kingdom of the Father. And now Jesus is sending them out to the world. You go make disciples. You go do this. And Jesus says in John 10, I'm the door to the sheep. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But here's the thing. Once you go through the door, you still have to choose a path. There are still choices to be made. And so one is broad, one is wide. Lots of opportunities, right, to do your own thing. But as we've seen with that these last couple of weeks, that way leads to destruction. That's a terrible way to go. The other path is narrow. It's narrow. It has boundaries that we must honor. But that way leads to life. It leads to life. Everlasting life. And so... I wonder, is there, is there a prevailing mindset in the church where we're supposed to convince people that they need to be baptized to secure eternal life for them, but if they don't do the whole disciple thing, well, that's their choice, right? They made that decision. If they don't become disciples, well, then obviously they weren't committed enough to Jesus, right? And Jesus tells the church, you go and you help people understand what it means. To live a life by the Spirit, in the Spirit, full of the Spirit, so that they are thriving with God and where they come to life. And so you teach them that there's no, there is a cost to discipleship. Discipleship is about transformation. It's about change that has to be made. It's not some life insurance policy. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's following Jesus with everything that you are, and everything that you have. And a lot of times, the way the Gospel is presented is, well, you need to trust in God and believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell. 
And that is true. That is true. But I don't see Jesus approaching it from that direction. It's, it's not some life insurance policy. What that sets up for is consumer Christianity. Because I got my get-out-of-hell card, right? I got that now. So I'm going to make sure that I'm comfortable in my Christianity. So how can I be comfortable? How can I be happy? How can I be served? That's what that leads to. And so, yes, you trust in God, which includes repentance. It includes confession. And you believe in Jesus, which includes baptism and forgiveness of sins. But it's so you can fully, completely, and wholeheartedly pursue this great commission and engage with God in His work to redeem creation. It's so that we can live a life full of passion and full of joy and where the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives. So we can live in a covenant with Jesus now. See, God has called us out of a life of consumption and into a life of production. We are to be producers But accepting that means I can't sit by and watch while the rest of the world crumbles into utter destruction because of the effects of sin. You don't see people in the New Testament saying, I've decided to follow Jesus, so when's heaven? When's the bus getting here? I don't see that in Scripture. You see them asking. You see them assessing. Okay, I have decided to follow Jesus, so what does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me to live today? And this is the responsibility that's been given to the church. The Creator of the world gives people responsibility. And you sit back and think about that. That's crazy. (laughs) Because some of us are irresponsible with stuff, right? But not God doesn't see it as crazy. Back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, right? God created and God gave responsibility to humanity. First He blessed, then He gave responsibility. So God creates and then He gives responsibility to cultivate to manage, to help grow, to take care of what God has created. And God didn't place mankind over creation so that we could just go and do whatever we wanted to do. That wasn't His plan. We have responsibility, which God has attached to that. But in Genesis 3, human beings become consumers. And the world suffers, and humanity suffers. And so first we consume, and then we criticize, and we finger point. And you see this throughout Scripture. God creates and then He calls us to create and to cultivate. And when people do this, when we join in this mission under His direction, people thrive and community thrives. But when we don't, we become consumers of God's grace and we develop this expectation. And it becomes all about me, all about ourselves. And we become critical of the way things have turned out. And so we consume instead of create. So what's it going to be for me? What's it going to be for us? What's it going to be for Summers Avenue? Do we create and cultivate? Or do we consume and criticize? In the new creation, the post-resurrection of disciples of Jesus were given responsibility to go and to cultivate. Not consume and criticize. So I feel pretty certain that most of us here today care about living life with purpose. We want to live life with purpose. I think most of humanity feels this way, right? We want to be loved. We want to belong to some kind of community. And we want to be part of something significant. And most people don't have to be significant. But they want to be part of something that's significant. Maybe we would agree with that. Earlier we sat and we shared in the table of the Lord. We came around and communed with one another. And we remembered that it's in Jesus 
that we find our purpose. We find our significance and we find our identity. We read from Ephesians 3, this letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus, and we find the apostle helping those there, the disciples, find their identity. This is who you are in Christ. This is your purpose in Christ. And so Paul first found his purpose. God sent him to to speak to the Gentiles and unite the Jews and Gentiles under the lordship of Jesus Christ and assemble these believers from, from various backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religious baggage, and, and teach them how to live together under the lordship of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so Ephesians 3 and verse 1, as we read, Paul says, For this reason, this is the reason I became, Paul says, a servant of Jesus Christ for this mission. He believed it. He believed it. He could articulate it. And he could live it for this reason. What's your reason? Do you have one? And can you articulate it? In order to make disciples, we have to be able to articulate. We have to be clear on our own reason for following Jesus. How can I lead someone else down a path that I'm not even willing to go? Or how can I lead somebody down a path that I'm not even on? There's somebody I know, and I will not mention names this morning, but every once in a while she'll call me about directions. This, thankful for Google now, because Google Maps helps out a lot. But she would call me for directions. And I would say, well, where are you? I'll help you get where you want to go, but where are you? She would say, I don't know. <laughs> how can you know where you're going, how to get where you're going, if you don't know where you are? We've got to evaluate our lives. Because I've got to know where I am Not only to get where I need to go, but to lead others where they need to go. What is your for this reason? What is your for this reason? You were created uniquely by the Creator of the world. And everyone doesn't have the same gifts. We don't have the same abilities. We don't have the same opportunities day to day, year to year in our life. That's what it means to to, to spread God's image throughout the world. That means that where I am, where I'm planted... That's where I'm to be, the image of God. So we're different in that sense. There is so much creativity in this room. There is so much talent, so much potential that's in this room this morning. But are we selling out to consumer Christianity instead of being producers? What's your for this reason? And can you articulate it? There are people in this world who want to hear the story of Jesus. And maybe what they want to hear the most is how you entered into that story. Maybe they want to know why from you. We're asking them to make a decision. Perhaps they want to know why did you make that decision? Do you know why? Do you know why? What brought you to confess Him as Lord? What compels you to follow Him as a disciple? And perhaps there are even more people who want to know why do you remain committed to Him? Look at the world around you. Look at how your life has turned out. Look at the hardships that you've faced. Why are you still committed to Jesus Christ? Maybe that's what they want to know. Do you know, day after day, why you still follow? And all these years, after all you've been through, how has your hope remained? And so it cannot be communicated through a passive attempt at carrying out the Great Commission. It takes relationship. It takes intention and it takes time. big question is, am I willing to give up the time? And sadly, today Jesus has become 
a preference for many Christians, a menu item on the buffet of life. But in the early church, he wasn't a preference. He was a calling. He was a, he was a heart call. I want us to reignite our calling. And I challenge us to reignite our calling. It starts for knowing your reason. You've got to know your reason. One thing Jesus and Paul modeled consistently for us is this emptying of self. And so Jesus is described as the servant of all. And in Luke chapter 9, He tells His disciples, 9.23, He said to them, If anyone wants to become My follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. And then the Apostle Paul, who had a pretty significant one-on-one with Jesus, he picks that up. And he picks up on that in Philippians 2 and verse 5. He says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Apostle Paul, when you know much about him at all, you know he had this social and religious pedigree, but he gives all of that up for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not come on some grandstand shouting down to people. Because when you want to communicate with a child, you don't stand over them. You get on eye level with them. And through Jesus, God made Himself eye level with us. In our passage in Ephesians we read, Paul calls himself a prisoner, a servant. And the least of all saints, of all people, he says he's the least. And if it's me, I'm probably going to try to get people to listen to me because of, of, of what I've accomplished. Who I am, where I stand. Some authority I think I have, right? I've been a Christian for over 40 years. My attendance record is, is, is outstanding. <laughs> That's my persuasion. What's your persuasion? Paul says, I'm a sinner. Not only that, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the least of all saints. But see, Paul speaks from authority because he's given his life over to Jesus Christ. And that's where his authority comes from. And so I can believe if someone wants to minister and someone wants to reach out to the poor, I can believe that when they know the poor by name when they've given their life to that person. And Paul says this calling came by grace. It was God's grace that Paul became a servant of Jesus. And it's by God's grace that we are called to follow Him. So how do we respond to God's grace? Well, it's not some measuring spoon portion. Paul said in chapter 1 that God had lavished His grace on us. Lavished. I used to buy splash cologne, right? And so now I buy you know, stuff that comes in a spray. I like it better. It only takes you, though, a few times to get used to how hard or how much to press that sprayer because if you spray too much, everyone within a three-mile radius will understand fully what lavish means, right? God has bathed us in His grace. He has lavished His grace on us. And we don't come to church to meet God as much as we come together as the church to learn and to remember how to live in the image of God each and every day, everywhere else. We learn how to bear His image in the cafeteria. We learn how to bear His image on our jobs. How to bear His image when we're waiting for our car to be ready. Or waiting for that doctor's appointment. We, the church, we help each other learn and remember 
how to live in the image of God everywhere that we go. And so Paul was sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to the heathen, right? To offer them, to extend the grace of God to them. And he says in Ephesians 3.9, "...and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages." In God who created all things. So what is this mystery? What is this that, that's, that's been revealed to everyone? Have you ever been around Christians who get mad at, at people who are not Christians because they don't act like Christians? See, sometimes we expect people who are not Christians to act like Christians even though the Spirit of God is not living in them. And so when we collectively come to realization that taking a stand for Jesus is more than a Facebook post or some inspirational tweet that we're going to make some movements in this world when we realize that. And so verse 9 isn't just to reveal to the lost how the mystery of salvation is being revealed to them. This Paul is also revealing to the church how the church is responsible for extending that message. It's our responsibility. So that through the church... The wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a multi-ethnic church Paul is speaking to brought together to reveal this extension of salvation by the grace of God. And the message is the same for us today. It's the same message. Ephesus, where he's writing to here, these Christians were, it was the world capital of all kinds of magic. Crazy stuff going on in Ephesus. It was the home to the temple of Artemis. Diana, who was the goddess of fertility, goddess of of war. Beautiful temple. One of the the, the great wonders of the known world at that time. So if you grew up in Ephesus and now you begin to follow Jesus, the question is, well, now what? Now what am I supposed to do here in this place? And you don't read about people in the New Testament saying, I've decided to follow Jesus... So now when is heaven, what they say is, I've decided to follow Jesus, so what does that mean for me living in Ephesus today? What does that mean for the church? And so many of you have traveled. You've seen wonders of the world. You've seen Great Wall of China. Some of you have. And I know a couple of you think that Krispy Kreme is a great wonder of the world. And it was in Ephesus that this wonder of the world, this ancient wonder, the, the, the Temple of Artemis, stood over the city. And over a million people came to Ephesus to worship Artemis every year. And it's in the, in the ancient world, the way to honor the god was to build them a temple. That's what you did. And the bigger the temple, well, the greater the god must be, right? And so ancient Greek philosophers said of this temple of Artemis that to see it is to be convinced that the world of the immortal gods has moved from heaven to earth. So when you witness this great, expanse, beautiful, luxurious temple, then they would realize the gods have come to earth. And it took 120 years to build this temple. And for all of the temple prostitution and the evil that was going on there, there were actually some redeeming qualities happening at the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the protector of the accused. So if you were charged with a crime, that was the only place that you could go to and find refuge. And in their own way, this temple was a place of compassion. It was a place of justice. And if you had needs, then you went to the temple of Artemis and there you had a chance to have your needs met. You could receive help there. 
And it was a great place of cultural influence. There were artists and musicians and, and poets. All of them would go to the Temple of Artemis to display their, their great gifts. And lastly, the Temple of Artemis is where you would go to meet with the gods. And so when you became a believer in Ephesus and you gathered with other Christians and you gathered in a home or some other location, you were likely always in the shadow of this great temple of Artemis. And so now we have all these people coming together and they're talking about what does it mean now to follow Jesus? And they peek out the window and what do they see? The temple of Artemis. And on the way to, to their house church and throughout the week and on their way to work and as they live among the other believers, what do they see? The temple of Artemis. It's looming over this city and this society. And as they're looking at the temple of Artemis, they receive a letter from Paul. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, that says something like, Christians, you are the temple of the living God. And they look out their window and then they look in the eyes of all their friends and they're being reminded that they are the temple of the living God. And they look out and they see that this God is false. This temple is fake. It's not real. We are the temple of the living God. So what does that mean for how we live? And so they, they, they push back and they say, look, we're, we're supposed to be the refuge for the accused, right? We are the place for the broken. Not just to give some handouts, but to restore dignity to them. We are the people who are supposed to be those of compassion and of justice. We're the ones who are supposed to be creative for God and use our artistic abilities, our gifts, to spread the beauty of God's kingdom throughout the world, everywhere that we go. And we don't go to a place to meet with God because we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of the living God. And so now fast forward 2,000 years and, and archaeologists have only recently dug up the old city of Ephesus, the beautiful temple of Artemis, it's just a pile of rocks. And most of it's buried under 20 feet of dirt. But the church of Jesus Christ keeps pressing on. It is still alive. It is still active. It is still impacting the world. The temple is gone. Artemis is dead. Yet the kingdom of God and the temple of His Spirit keeps moving forward. And it hasn't done that by living internally focused. And it hasn't done that by being passive. And it hasn't done that by consuming and criticizing. So that through the church, Paul says, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that He has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It wasn't something God thought about in 33 A.D. It was something God had eternally planned for. And the church is the training ground and the launching pad for the release of this mighty power of Jesus to draw people unto Him. That's us. And so we stop and we can marvel at the beautiful portrait of a family, the people, the relationships. And we're in awe of the, the, the great creation of the God in the portrait of a sunset. But we need to stop and we need to marvel at God's marvelous portrait of the church. His kingdom come. Filled with rebels. Filled with those who Jesus saw as worthy to pursue and to die for. And to empower His Spirit to carry on His holy work of restoration through. 
and to go into all the world and continue to make disciples, to deliver this promise and to share this hope, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all things He has commanded us. But that takes relationship. And it takes getting past my own laziness or my own insecurities or my own bad examples. It takes loving the world around us the way Jesus loved the world. And it means that wherever you go and whatever you do, we are able to proclaim, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven is here. We point the way to God's eternal dwelling while we live every day, each day, not in the shadow of a deteriorating temple, deteriorating kingdom, but shining the glorious light of His kingdom come. What are you holding back from God today? What piece of your life? What talent are you holding back? What opportunity? What influence? Are you a producer for the kingdom of God? Or are you just a consumer of God's grace? See, the answer to that question is the difference between 1153 and 21,840. That's the difference there. The church moves forward when we risk our lives in the depth of God's grace. But just like the parable of the talents, there's, there's no risk and no reward. God's kingdom is the portrait of reward. And we praise Him for inviting us into that. Who in your life needs to have that invitation from you? Perhaps somebody's here today that needs to hear that invitation. The invitation is from Jesus Christ, the One who opened the door of the heavens. God's eternal kingdom and empowers us with His Spirit to live today in the light of that kingdom, spreading His message of hope and grace and mercy and love and eternity with Him to those around us. And you enter that kingdom through Jesus Christ by confessing Him as the Son of God, Lord and Savior of your life, repenting of your sins, being baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness that He freely gives. God accepts through His sacrifice and then receiving the gift of His Spirit today. And perhaps that you have fallen away from your responsibility that God gave you in your place, in your life, to be that message, to be that light to shine. Today you can ask forgiveness from Him and He will grant it. And then let us support one another and encourage one another to live each day in the light of His kingdom come. If we can help you this morning, we're to stand and sing a song of encouragement. Will you come? Let the weak